Ahead of former President Donald Trump's courthouse appearance on federal charges tomorrow, extremist experts are monitoring far-right groups for any talk of violence. At this time, we're not seeing any discussions or chatter of doing anything like, you know, trying to breach into the courthouse. It's Monday, June 12th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Trump has called on his supporters to converge on the area. Also ahead, a look at how Trump's allies and longtime staffers are planning to minimize the damage of federal charges, but maximize the fundraising. And on this date in 1963, civil rights leader Medgar Evers was assassinated at his home in Jackson, Mississippi, by a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Evers became a martyr of the civil rights movement at the age of 37. These stories, the forecast, and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Miami's getting ready for former President Donald Trump and potentially thousands of his supporters. He's been rallying to protest outside the federal courthouse where he's scheduled to make his initial court appearance tomorrow. Police Chief Manny Morales says his department's bringing in enough resources to handle anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 people. We're bringing enough resources to handle crowd anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 we don't expect any issues. But Morales says his department's taking the expected protests extremely seriously. Trump arrived in Miami today. Tomorrow afternoon, he's due to face 37 felony counts, most of which are related to the illegal possession of classified documents after the Republican lost to then-presidential candidate Joe Biden in 2020 and left the White House. Trump is fighting to get back there, despite criminal indictments and investigations. The Republican remains the front-runner in a growing field of candidates for the 2024 GOP nomination. Authorities investigating the partial collapse of I-95 in Philadelphia over the weekend confirmed they have found human remains. Here's NPR's Joe Hernandez. The Pennsylvania State Police say a body was discovered in the wreckage and turned over to the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office for identification. It came one day after a tanker truck caught fire beneath an overpass in northeast Philadelphia, later causing the roadway above to collapse. Traffic is stopped in both directions, and officials say it could take months to repair the highway. That could mean significant delays for drivers using the major artery that runs along the east coast from Florida to Maine. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro has issued a disaster declaration saying this will allow the Commonwealth to access federal money and rebuild I-95 faster. Joe Hernandez, NPR News, Philadelphia. In western New York, authorities say a boat flipped over during a tour of an underground cavern system with Lockport Cave tours this morning. 29 people were on board when the vessel capsized. At least one person was killed. 11 people were injured. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says China has been trying to expand its military power around the world, including in Cuba, and he blames the Trump administration for not doing enough to prevent that. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. A recent Wall Street Journal report said China has a new spying effort underway in Cuba. Secretary Blinken says the Chinese intelligence gathering on the island is part of a global effort by the People's Republic of China to expand its military presence and intelligence gathering around the world. Based on the information we have, the PRC conducted an upgrade of its intelligence collection facilities in Cuba 
in 2019. Blinken says from the start, the Biden administration has been working, in his words, quietly and carefully to slow down this effort by China, and he thinks that approach is working. That's Michelle Kellerman reporting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Brockton man accused of shooting a Boston police officer Friday night is being held without bail. About 50 Boston police officers attended today's arraignment of 23-year-old John Lazare. A not guilty plea was entered on Lazare's behalf. He's due back in court later this month. According to police, the officer who was wounded was looking for a robbery suspect at the time of the shooting. That officer, whose name has not been released, left the hospital yesterday. New England's largest utility, energy utility, Eversource, broke ground today on the country's first utility-operated networked geothermal system. The climate-friendly project will involve using deep wells, underground pipes, and heat pumps. They will heat and cool 37 buildings in Framingham without using fossil fuels. WBR's Miriam Wasser has more. Figuring out how to quickly and equitably get homes and businesses off of fossil fuels remains one of the biggest climate challenges in the region. With this pilot project, environmentalists hope Eversource can model a new business plan for gas utilities that provides cleaner and cheaper home heating and cooling for customers. Audrey Shulman is the co-executive director of HEAT, the environmental nonprofit that first pitched this idea to Eversource several years ago. This is a way of sort of offering them candy in the direction that we want them to go. <laughs> and I hope that they head that way with all speed. Eversource will soon begin the main phase of construction and plans to have the system up and running by November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Shuttle buses are replacing trains on part of the Green Line's B branch this afternoon. That's after a train derailed near Packard's Corner in Brighton. Passengers can also use the 57 bus for free while the MBTA works to get the train back on the tracks. The train had about 30 passengers on board when one of the trolley cars derailed about 2.30 this afternoon. Nobody was hurt. 78 degrees now, still pretty mild out there. Overnight tonight should fall to about 60 degrees. Rain tonight, maybe the rumble of thunder. And then for tomorrow, rising to 73 degrees, showers early in the day, overcast skies for the afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR, again 78 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Attorneys are calling it a major step towards justice for victims of Jeffrey Epstein. J.P. Morgan has settled a lawsuit over alleged ties to the late disgraced financier and his sex trafficking operation. We'll have details on that settlement in just a moment. First, former President Trump has arrived in Miami ahead of his arraignment at a federal courthouse tomorrow. He's facing unprecedented criminal charges over his handling of classified materials. And he went on attack over the weekend telling a crowd at the North Carolina Republican Convention that the case against him amounts to election interference by President Joe Biden. The baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. I think it already is when you think about it. President Biden has said he's never, quote, suggested to the Justice Department what they should or should not do. 
NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is covering the politics around the case and is here in the studio. Hey, Franco. Hey, Ari. All right. What, what, what should we expect tomorrow? I mean, you shouldn't expect too much substance. An arraignment is more of a procedural event. But this is, of course, a very significant and historic arraignment. Trump is expected to plead not guilty to the 37 charges. I spoke with Stephen Groves, who was a former White House attorney who worked on the Mueller investigation. He told me he expects Trump's lawyers will soon file a motion to dismiss the case. And he argues they have a good basis to do that because presidents have broad authority on what they can classify and declassify. The old saying is tried and true that no one is above the law. The question is, what is the law here? Do laws that were not written and not designed to uh, handle presidents and former presidents uh, really apply? He went on to say that the authors probably didn't have presidents in mind when they wrote these laws and that the courts will have to determine whether or not they have constitutional privileges that excuse the president from some of these laws like this. And yet when you read the indictment, it goes way beyond keeping classified documents. They allege that he actively worked to stop the government from recovering those documents. Right. The conspiracy to obstruct the justice charge. Trump's accused of suggesting to one of his lawyers even that they lie to the FBI about the documents or hide them or possibly even destroy them. But his lawyers are likely going to argue about these broad executive powers as president. And Grove says there are better ways of checking that power by not reelecting him or if he was still in office by impeaching him. And he says, in his opinion at least, it'll be a stretch under the Constitution to bring criminal charges against a former president over classified documents because of that broad authority. Of course, we are seeing others from the former Trump administration, including his own attorney general, Bill Barr, saying this looks like a really tough indictment to get over. How are other people close to the former president responding? You know, they are really fighting back. As one former advisor told me, you know, they're not going to give an inch. It's not that Trump's team is not concerned, but they also see this as an opportunity to galvanize support around a central message of his campaign, that there is a double standard of treatment against Republicans at the Justice Department and FBI. I spoke about this with Brian Lanza, who was a former aide to Trump and remains in very close contact with the campaign. It also highlights the fact that there's a dual track of judicial system in the United States that appears to be you know, thumb on a scale towards conservatives and benefiting liberals. And he says the campaign is already making a lot of money in that process on that argument. The campaign has sent a bunch of texts and emails asking for donations for Trump's legal defense, as well as asking for campaign donations. We'll also hear more from Trump just a few hours later after he appears in court. He plans to address the indictment in public remarks when he returns to his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. The 2024 presidential primary season is already underway with a growing Republican field. How is the indictment likely to affect the election? Well, I mean, what happens tomorrow is just the start. The criminal cases criminal cases can take months, if not years, to resolve, of course, and it's going to add a lot of uncertainty to the 2024 presidential race. There's a real possibility that Trump will be in the thick of this legal fight at the same time he's in the thick of his campaign fight. But few of his opponents in the Republican primary have used the charges to try to attack him. Even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his closest rival, has come to his defense. And it's going to be interesting to watch whether Trump can maintain his support. But it's really early. It's NPR's Franco Ordonez giving some insight into the perspective from those close to former President Trump. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. 
$290 million. That is how much J.P. Morgan Chase is prepared to pay victims of Jeffrey Epstein to settle a major lawsuit that those survivors brought against the bank. Epstein was one of J.P. Morgan's customers for 15 years, and as NPR's David Gura reports, the plaintiffs allege that the firm helped facilitate Epstein's sex trafficking operation. If a judge approves the agreement, this substantial sum will be divvied up among more than 100 of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. That's according to David Boyes, who's one of their attorneys. It's a major step in achieving vindication and compensation for the survivors. They alleged J.P. Morgan Chase knew, or at least should have known, about Epstein's abuse. Notably, the bank didn't cut ties with him, even after Epstein was sentenced to jail for soliciting prostitution with a child. Epstein was awaiting trial for sex trafficking when he died by suicide in 2019. J.P. Morgan maintains it didn't know. In May, its CEO Jamie Dimon told Bloomberg TV he was sad the firm had any relationship with Epstein whatsoever. Obviously, had we known then we know today, we would have done things differently, but it's very unfortunate. In a statement, J.P. Morgan called its association with Epstein a mistake. The settlement comes after a string of embarrassing revelations in hundreds of email messages and depositions with executives. Diamond himself sat for a deposition last month for more than five hours. Epstein kept his accounts at the bank, and he brought in business. He also withdrew tens of thousands of dollars from his accounts in cash, withdrawals that weren't reported. For years, Epstein had a close relationship with one of Diamond's deputies, Jess Staley. Staley later led the British bank Barclays, where in 2021, his friendship with Epstein was his undoing. Barclays CEO Jess Staley is stepping down, this following an investigation into his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. J.P. Morgan is now suing Staley, alleging he misled the firm about Epstein. Boys calls this settlement historic, but he says institutions have to take more responsibility. It is, I think, a, an object lesson of how much farther we need to go as a society to really implement the rule of law, not only for the rich and the powerful, uh, but for the weak and the vulnerable. J.P. Morgan's Epstein-related legal troubles are not over yet. The U.S. Virgin Islands, where Epstein lived, has filed a similar suit against the bank that is still pending. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Shortly after midnight on June 12, 1963, civil rights organizer Medgar Evers pulled into his driveway in Jackson, Mississippi. He stepped out of his Oldsmobile carrying shirts that read, Jim Crow must go. And then... In a vacant lot about 40 yards away, a sniper fired a single shot from a high-powered rifle at Evers' silhouette. Today marks 60 years since that assassination. Evers became a national civil rights martyr. He was 37. NPR's Julian Ring has this remembrance. Only a few hours before Medgar Evers was killed, President John F. Kennedy had addressed the civil rights movement on TV. Now, one of its most prominent figures was gone, murdered by a member of the Ku Klux Klan, who wouldn't be brought to justice for more than 30 years. While civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. pushed for equality across the U.S., Evers focused his efforts on his native Mississippi, he worked as the NAACP's first field secretary in that state. Don't shop for anything on Capitol Street. Let's let the merchants down on Capitol Street feel the economic pinch. Evers led boycotts of white-owned businesses. He held voter registration drives for Mississippi's black population. And he fought to overturn segregation in public spaces, like during this direct action campaign in Jackson in May 1963. 
We'll be demonstrating here until freedom comes to Negroes here in Jackson, Mississippi. This was just weeks before he died. One of Evers' most famous moments of activism came when he applied to law school at the all-white University of Mississippi. After the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, he partnered with the NAACP to see if the new law was being enforced. It wasn't. Evers was rejected because of the color of his skin. But he carried out a long campaign to integrate the university, paving the way for future generations of black students. Evers' growing stature as a black leader attracted hostility from white supremacists. Here's his widow, Merle Evers-Williams, speaking to NPR in 2013. Medgar became number one on the Mississippi to kill list. And we never knew from one day to the next uh, what would happen. We lived, I lived in fear of losing him. Uh, he lived being constantly aware that he could be killed at any time. Despite receiving violent threats, Evers often spoke of his affection for home. He wrote an essay titled Why I Live in Mississippi, which was published in the November 1958 issue of Ebony Magazine. His older brother, Charles, read an excerpt on NPR. It may sound funny, but I love the South. I don't choose to live anywhere else. There is room here for my children to play and grow and become good citizens if the white men will let them. Charles Evers was himself a civil rights activist who helped transform Mississippi politics. He became the state's first black mayor of a biracial town in 1969 and carried on his brother's legacy. I've met him, I said many years ago, if we could ever end the, the, the violent racism in the state, it'd be the greatest state in the world to live. And now, Medgar, I know you're gone, and, but I'm telling you, son, it's come to pass. The assassination of Medgar Evers, June 12, 1963, 60 years ago this week. But they laid Medgar Evers in his grave. Julian Ring, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, the Tony Award-winning actress Jodie Comer about the Broadway premiere of her play. On Wall Street today, an up day. The Dow rose more than a half percent. S&P jumped to a 13-month high today, picked up nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq grew by more than one and a half percent. Researchers at the Broad Institute in Cambridge are forming a union. The workers behind the effort run experiments, analyze data, and process samples. They say they're seeking fair wages, more transparency and promotions, disability accommodations, and more. A Broad Institute spokesperson says it's looking forward to working with the researchers to ensure it's an open and inclusive workplace. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Red Sox open up a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies tonight at Fenway. James Paxton takes the hill for the Sox. Connor Siebold pitches for the Rockies, 7-10 start time. 
Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. A rainy night tonight, maybe some thunderstorms, about 60 degrees. Tomorrow, showers early in the day, clouds through the afternoon, highs about 73. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Jodie Comer. American audiences probably know her as Villanelle, the beautiful chameleon-like assassin on Killing Eve. I did my first ever kill in this country here. Strangled a high-ranking police officer. He was a tango champion. Or as Millie and her avatar Molotov girl in the movie Free Guy. Now Comer is also a Tony Award winner. She won Best Actress at last night's ceremony for Prima Facie. The one-woman show is in the final weeks of a Broadway run after selling out in London's West End last year. It is the story of Tessa, a lawyer who successfully represents men accused of sexual assault. The only way the system works is because we all play our roles. My role is defense. The prosecutor prosecutes. We each tell a story and the jury decide which story is the one they believe. They take the responsibility. A good lawyer just tells the best version of their client's story, nothing more, nothing else. But Tessa's idea of the law and the system she excels at beating changes after she is sexually assaulted by a co-worker and love interest. I spoke to Jodie Comer before the show's Broadway debut. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jody, there's so much to talk about here, and I want to get into the themes of this play, but as I just mentioned, you are the play. It runs for about two hours, and it's a combination of narration and acting, and it's incredibly physical. Like, you do not just act out these parts. <laughs> you are all over the set. You are jumping on tables. Your hands are all over the place. And I got a little tired watching you. What has this been like for you physically? Yes, it was definitely, you know, a challenge, but it was also incredible. You know, I think it really fed into this this fact that, you know, Tessa was in control of every element of this storytelling, you know, and um, that was what really struck me when I first read the piece, you know, I'd explored material before that deals with sexual assault, but it was never told in this manner. And I felt like she had so, so much control over the narrative. The other thing that sticks in my head thinking about watching you as Tessa is, your voice and the way it changes when you're talking about a high moment, when you're talking about a low moment, when you're describing things that are funny or things that are sad. What was it like having to control all of these different elements for two hours? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I think it's something you're really aware of at the beginning because, um, 
you know, I just felt so intimidated by the size of it all. But you then come to a point where it kind of flows naturally. But what I was struck by in my kind of research, you know, there's one particular barrister who I was kind of shadowing and she was from Scotland. But whenever she spoke publicly in court, her accent really diminished, mm. you know, and she was uh, pronouncing her words much clearer. And I thought, how interesting is that, you know, that there's a kind of presentation within the court itself. And then, you know, like you say, when you see Tessa at home, she's kind of back to her roots and that kind of, I guess, facade slips. And they're all just nuances, you know, these were all things that I witnessed and thought, oh, how great if we can incorporate that, especially because Tessa is from a working class background and she's extremely successful, but it's all from her own hard work. It's so interesting because, as you point out, Tessa is from a working class background and she describes early on how she fought her way to Cambridge Law, which is no small feat. And she's just so powerful as the play opens. Yeah, I mean, she's confident, you know, like, that's what's so brilliant about that opening. Like there's a cockiness to her and there's a slight arrogance. There's an element where you could see her in that opening scene and maybe dislike her a little bit because of her arrogance. But I love that she was allowed to be just that because she believed in herself. Early on, it, it almost seems as though she thinks of her work as a bit of a game. I don't know if I would say that I think she manipulates the accusers, but she is fully in control in that courtroom. Is that a fair assessment of the way you think she approaches the law? Yes, I, I do. I think there's an element of, you know, there's a way in which the law works and she understands that so fully so that when she, you know, she gets in into the courtroom and she sees how people are potentially underestimating her or undermining her, you know, there's a way in which she, like you say, manipulates that situation and she may play into that to then kind of catch them out at the end. But like, fundamentally, she believes in the law, you know, it's something that she's committed her entire life to. Um, and I think that's what makes her journey all the more kind of richer and also devastating is the fact that she's dedicated her life and her time to something that is very much called into question. Um, and by the end of the play, you know, she she doubts a, a lot of that and sees how it it really does need to change. As we were talking about, when we see Tessa at the beginning of the play, she is larger than life. She is powerful. She owns the court. She owns the stage. And then there's this turn in this incredibly intense and, frankly, difficult to watch couple of minutes. The audience experiences her through you being assaulted. And I'd just like to ask you, what was it like for you portraying those very intense moments? I always remember, you know, that part of the play is like, you literally feel the entire audience holding their breath. Like I'm always struck in that moment by the silence in the room. Mm. What what I loved about it and what I will say and, and what I think about, again, the power of the play is that you don't see the perpetrator, you don't see Julian, you don't see the physical assault take place, but it's all about language and stillness and her telling you what it is that she's experiencing you know it's incredibly intimate and exposing and I think the way in which the assault is depicted is is very rare and I think in a way that's what makes it all the more powerful. How do you think that Tessa's idea of legal truth changes over the course of the play? 
I think it changes in a sense of, you know, especially, you know, when you think about being questioned in court, you know, if a woman becomes irate or emotional, that can be used against her. And it, and it's like, if you experience something like Tessa experiences, how are you, how are you supposed to bottle up that emotion when it's something that has happened to you and is so deeply, deeply personal? Right. How are you not emotional? How are you not angry? Exactly. exactly. And, um, you know, I think as well, this idea that, you know, the woman is questioned, the man can sit there, you know, it, for instance, I'd speak about Tessa and Julian, it's like, she's questioned, her phone is searched, you know, she has to speak about the assault and what happened to her in front of her family in court and in front of, you know, however many strangers who are predominantly men. And Julian can just sit there in silence and not have to prove anything you know it's it's up to her to prove her innocence actually is what is what it is and i think she realizes how you know how backwards that is you know the fact that he can sit there and not be cross-examined that was jody comer now a tony award winner and star of the one woman show prima facie This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, breezy and mild into the evening hours. Overnight tonight should be rainy, down around 60 degrees. And then for tomorrow, look for showers in the morning, lots of clouds around later, temperatures in the low 70s. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, former President Trump is expected to appear in federal court in Miami on charges related to his possession of classified documents after his presidency. Listen for live special coverage tomorrow at 3 here at 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. And MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious? what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For decades, Indian boarding schools tried to erase indigenous culture. A few are still open and trying to reverse course. I guess you could say you had that support from your other peers that were around your age pushing you to graduate, pushing you to do better. First, the newscast. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
The popular online forum Reddit has been experiencing widespread outages as thousands of communities on the site launch a boycott. NPR's Bobby Allen tells us Reddit users are protesting new fees the company announced for access to its data. More than 7,000 discussion groups called subreddits on the site have gone dark to try to force changes at Reddit. The company is trying to charge third-party developers a fee for accessing website data. Before this, such access was free. Company executives say artificial intelligence companies are scraping Reddit and using its data to train AI models. Reddit says it does not get anything from that arrangement. But third-party apps, which many use to browse Reddit on mobile devices, say the new fees would put them out of business. Reddit, which relies on ads and is not profitable, is planning to publicly list its shares later this year. Bobby Allen, NPR News. The Biden administration confirms that China has been operating a spy base in Cuba since 2019 as part of a global effort to upgrade its intelligence capabilities. U.S. intelligence agencies have been aware of the situation for some time now. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says they've made some progress in efforts to thwart the Chinese. From day one, um, when we came in, uh, we took this issue seriously. We've taken some steps to try to mitigate uh, the, uh, the vulnerability of, of those activities, uh, and we're gonna keep, and we're gonna keep doing that. The existence of the Chinese spy base was confirmed after the Wall Street Journal last week reported that China and Cuba had reached an agreement to build an electronic spy station on the island. The journal says China planned to pay cash-strapped Cuba billions of dollars for that site. Stocks finished higher today on Wall Street. The Dow gained 189 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Justice Elspeth Seifer will be stepping down in January. She was one of seven sitting jurors appointed by former Governor Charlie Baker. WBUR Steve Brown says the impending vacancy will give Governor Moore Healy her first chance to make an appointment on the high court. Healy praised Seifer for her nearly seven years of service at the SJC. She'll step down five years before the mandatory retirement age of 70. Healy said the justice still has several months to go before her retirement takes effect and that she'll make an announcement about a replacement at the appropriate time. Healy was reluctant to spell out what qualities she'll be looking for in a new justice. I'll be looking for the very best person that we can find to be the next justice of the Supreme Judicial Court. Cypher will become a visiting professor of law next spring at Boston College Law School. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. State lawmakers have just a few days left to decide when this year's annual sales tax holiday will be held. The House and Senate have until Thursday to set dates for the annual holiday in August, or the Department of Revenue will make the decision. There were multiple bear sightings today northwest of Boston. First, a bear was spotted this morning in Arlington Heights. That forced the start of schools in town to be delayed by an hour. Later, a bear was spotted at Wilson's Farm on Pleasant Street in Lexington. That's fairly nearby. State environmental police are working to locate the animal. They say it is not showing any signs of aggressive behavior. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Now through July 16th, amrep.org. And Davis Malm. Immigration laws are not foreign to them. Learn more at davismalm.com. Got a mix of clouds and sunshine this afternoon and this evening, then a rainy night tonight, maybe some thunderstorms falling to about 60. Tomorrow could rise to 73 degrees, showers early in the day, overcast skies later on. The time is 4.35.
and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work, with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a few moments, we'll visit the streets of Manchester, England, where soccer fans are celebrating the victory of a team that was once an underdog. First, let's turn to Donald Trump. The former president has called on supporters to gather in Miami tomorrow, where he's expected to make his courthouse appearance. He made the call, as usual, on social media. In 2021, it was a tweet from Trump that many view as one igniting factor behind the insurrection of January 6th. The extremism landscape may have shifted since then. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is here to explain. Hey, Odette. Hey, Ari. Uh, Set the stage for us. What's the chatter been like within far-right circles over the last few days? Well, Ari, there's been an uptick in online rhetoric about a coming civil war, which is a favorite theme in extremist circles. Also, you know, calls to violence against perceived political enemies. And there's been some concern about violent speech, specifically targeting Attorney General Merrick Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith. Um, And then there's been another category of activity, which has been calls to gather. So, you know, certain people or groups organizing rallies at the courthouse. But so far, Ari, extremism researchers are saying that those two categories don't appear to be overlapping much. You know, we're not really seeing those rally organizers calling for or preparing for violence. Uh, And so they're not picking up the same kind of clear troubling signals uh, that they were in the run up to January 6th. Although if people were planning for preparing for violence, would they be advertising that on social media? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, um, especially because the criminal investigations and the arrests related to January 6th really drove the far right into more secure, encrypted, private spaces for their communications. Uh, And now many of those communications may not even be happening online at all. Um, Here's Jared Holt with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. If conversations are happening offline, which increasingly they are in far-right organizing, you know, we wouldn't have visibility into it. It's a little bit of a wild card. Generally speaking, if there was going to be a big far-right mobilization, I would expect somebody to post something uh, and we would find it. But Ari Holt says there's just so much paranoia on the far right now when anyone calls for a mass gathering. You know, people accuse the organizers of trying to set a trap to catch Trump supporters. So often these calls end up getting a small number of people like we saw today at a rally where reporters outnumbered the protesters. Well, if people are organizing offline, where would that organization actually be taking place? So to answer this question, you really have to understand a couple of things about how the far right has changed since January 6th. Um, First, they really shifted from organizing nationally to organizing locally. And they've moved on to issues unrelated to Trump, which have appealed to a whole variety of conservatives. Uh, Lately, it's been the anti-LGBTQ campaign. 
So we're seeing, you know, religious groups, moms groups, white nationalists and extremists like the Proud Boys all show up to protest things like drag queen story hours, which means they're physically in the same spaces, they're meeting each other and they're forming offline connections that they can then carry on. So if extremism researchers are not raising alarms about a big gathering in Miami tomorrow, what does concern them right now? You know, there still is a real concern that the elevated rhetoric that we're seeing could tip a radicalized individual into violence. And, you know, we saw this when federal authorities executed their search warrant for classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, for example. And, you know, somebody then attempted to attack an FBI field office in Cincinnati. And, you know, Ari, that sort of threat is concerning because it's always there. It could happen really anywhere in the country. And frankly, it's much harder to detect ahead of time. NPR's Odette Youssef, thanks a lot. My pleasure. A soccer team that was long considered Manchester England's second team in the shadow of Manchester United is now the champion. Manchester City has won a hat trick of soccer competitions this year. Trophies from not only England's Premier League and the FA Cup, but also now from the Champions League of Europe. Manchester City is only the second team in history to do this. And tonight, Manchester, the actual city, is hosting a victory parade for its hometown town heroes and NPR's Lauren Freyer is there in the thick of it all. Hi Lauren. Hi Elsa. I don't know if you can hear me. <laughs> oh I can hear the it. Cheers behind me. <laughs> I can hear it and my first question is just tell me what the atmosphere is like just being in the middle of it all. It's pouring rain but people <laughs> are drenched and thrilled. Uh, I just want to play for you what it sounded like on the train into Manchester this evening. <laughs> So this was like a whole train car of fans singing Man City songs. And then I got into the city center, jammed with people, waving flags. Light blue is the color of Man City. And I met this six-year-old little girl waving a flag. Her name is Laura Webster. So as you can hear, clearly her favorite player is Bernardo Silva. Um, The team is riding in a bus through the streets of Manchester. As I said, it's raining, but that hasn't put a damper on the atmosphere here. People are thrilled. Man City is the only team in history to do this since their hometown rivals, Man United, did it way back in 1999. Incredible. Wait, so how did Manchester City achieve this? Um, money, billions of dollars. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Man City is the richest club in the world. Fifteen years ago, Man City was bought by a sheikh from Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mansour. And that really signified a new era in football, in soccer. We've seen big money pouring into English football from Russian oligarchs, from Arab sheikhs. The Saudis just bought Newcastle, another football team here in the north of England. But you know, it's not just money. It's how it's spent. And Man City's owners have revitalized what used to be a kind of blighted area around the stadium, really contributed to the economic development of this city and absolutely endeared their fans to them. Here's little Laura Webster's father, Kevin Webster, who's been a Man City fan for 30 years. We've been through some bad times and these are the good times now, so... You remember when Man City wasn't... Poor, very poor, yeah. It was a poor team. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you loved them in your heart, you loved them so much. We we feel like we deserve it, though. We feel like we deserve it because of the bad times. You know, when you've looked really bad, it's like you've won the lot, you're really lucky. 
You know, so we are in the era of big money in soccer, but money doesn't guarantee success. Man City's owners have invested in players. I mean, this team is like a who's who of international soccer. Haaland, De Bruyne, Rodri, Grealish. And Man City's owners have invested not only in players, but probably in one of the best coaches in the world. Okay, so who is Man City's coach and, and what role did he play in all of this? Pep Guardiola, he won the Champions League with Barcelona. He was a Barcelona player, then was a Barcelona manager. He went on to Bayern Munich. He took a sabbatical in New York, incidentally, uh, refueled there, and then came to manage Man City, and he built this team. He could easily walk away from football now. Um, and he said, quote, the job is done when he won this treble, these triple trophies. But he's got two more years on his contract. And fans here are saying, you know, that's two more years of Champions League titles to go for. More to come. That is NPR's Lauren Freyer in Manchester, England. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Have so much fun over there. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A rare talent has propelled a 13-year-old Kentucky singer into the Western music charts. Phoebe White has been yodeling for audiences for nearly half her life. Sherry Lawson of member station WEKU has more. Okay, there. It's easy to smile when you hear Phoebe White. She sits with her acoustic guitar in the music room at her rural Kentucky home. There are several stringed musical instruments lined up on one wall. This song is from her album, Unexpected. Whatever happened to the yodeling cowgirls that rode across the silver screen? The giggling teen wears a pair of denim overalls. She says she likes everything cowgirl. She also likes cheesecake and cookies and the family dog they call Kenny Rogers. But most of all, she likes to perform in front of people. And they go, I just love yodeling. I love making the audience smile because it's something different. And when I see people smile or just see them happy, it just makes me so happy. It was the song Blue by country singer Leanne Rhymes that inspired Phoebe to learn how to yodel. She was just eight years old when she heard it on the way home from vacation. More inspiration quickly followed from old-time yodelers like Jimmy Rogers and Patsy Montana. Phoebe's mom and manager, Tiffany White, sits close by as her daughter demonstrates a few different types of yodeling patterns. My first yodel I ever learned was And then the next yodel I learned was Tiffany says it was a complete surprise to learn recently that Phoebe's album made the Western music charts. They saw it when they got the spring edition of The Western Way. I was stunned because she just released the album and I was flipping through the magazine. I didn't know that she would be on the charts at all, much less number seven. So that was exciting, very exciting. When she was seven years old, Phoebe told her mom she wanted to sing for an audience and be entered in competitions. She's won 24 talent contests. The bubbly teenager can sing different genres, but prefers what she calls cowboy or Western music. Phoebe also plays several instruments by ear. 
I play piano, I play 12-string guitar, I play guitar, play banjo, ukulele, and mandolin, and I'm learning fiddle right now. Phoebe says she's become friends with the Grammy-winning Western music and comedy group Writers in the Sky. The Grand Old Opry members sing three tracks with Phoebe on her new album. They even changed the title of their big hit, Jessie the Yodeling Cowgirl, to Phoebe the Yodeling Cowgirl when they sing with her. They call her Phoebe the Yodeling Cowgirl. That song was written by Writers in the Sky's Ranger Doug. He's also known for his yodeling and has given Phoebe a few tips. Well, I think she's just really beginning. She laid the groundwork starting at age 8 to 13, and she has plenty of developing yet to do. She's going to be a major talent. Hold on to your ass, partners. Phoebe White is already planning her next album. She's hoping to write all the songs. Over the summer, she's scheduled to perform in Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio. For NPR News, I'm Sherry Lawson in London, Kentucky. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, a rare look from inside Yemen shows that while the war may be winding down, the vast humanitarian needs persist. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting John Oliver, live on August 27th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. Bright skies in the Boston area now. Clouds should rain tonight, and we should have rain too, down around 60 degrees. Tomorrow, a damp start. Plenty of clouds for the afternoon, about 73 for a high. 78 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Landry and Arkari, you can experience their tent event this Saturday. For one day only, browse hundreds of hand-woven rugs, 8 to 4 in Salem. LandryandArkari.com. When the Beatles came to America in 1964, many people took their pictures, as Paul McCartney took theirs. With the police on horseback, and then behind the barricades, the kids, you know, all the fans. So it was great photographic material. The Beatles' arrival as it looked through McCartney's camera on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Federal Indian boarding schools were designed to take Native children and erase their culture, their history, traditions, and languages. A year ago, the federal government finally acknowledged its role in the system. And while the schools that have closed are widely condemned today, some that are still in operation are actually celebrated. We're going to hear why from NPR's Sequoia Carrillo and KOSU's Allison Herrera. 
Sequoia, you visited a school in Oklahoma. What is its story? Yes, I was lucky enough to visit Riverside Indian School in Anadarko, Oklahoma. It actually first opened its doors back in 1871, and it's been in operation since. It's one of only a handful of federal Indian residential schools still operating in the U.S. today. And instead of stripping children of Native identity, it is trying to strengthen that identity. How are they doing that? Yes, we went in knowing the facts. We knew that the majority of staff is now Native and there are cultural elements present in the curriculum, but we didn't know when it shifted or if there was a clear shift from a place that erased culture to a place that promotes it and protects it. So we worked with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to get access inside and we went to see it. Okay, let's listen to this report from Allison Herrera. The campus is sprawling in every direction, with new and renovated buildings mixed in with older, dilapidated ones. There are a few trailers, an old red barn, and a brand new basketball court. It's all overseen by the school's principal. Hi. I'm the principal here at Riverside Indian School. Good morning. She takes us on a tour and says hello to just about everyone, including some of the maintenance staff. Y'all working hard? Hardly. Okay. <laughs> Leave that door open for me, okay? Yes, ma'am. Riverside is a residential school, so there are dorms and recreational facilities that make it feel more like a junior college than a high school or middle school. The dorm staff work really hard to make sure that they feel like this is their home. Good morning. Hi, hi. As Wilson shows us around, the one thing she won't let us do is go into the classroom and talk to the students. The Bureau of Indian Education declined our request to observe classes or interview students. Many of those students come here because their parents or their older siblings also attended this school. In recent generations, students see it as a way to get a better education away from their hometowns. Some even come back as teachers. We met one of them in the hallway just outside his classroom. Benjamin Blackstar, uh, and I'm an art teacher here at Riverside in this school. I'm also an alumni from here. So I graduated in 2004. Blackstar says a lot has changed since he attended. Now the students are taught things like drum making, stickball, and are encouraged to explore their cultural identity. Here in the hallway, he shows us art from past students and newspaper clippings of recent graduates and success stories. Some of the students have also taken to wearing traditional clothing like ribbon skirts and moccasins. Every uh, young lady here, you know, uh, they all wear ribbon skirts now, and it's it's such an amazing sight to see. Blackstar's grandma went to Riverside, too, 75 years ago. But he sees her a lot, pointing to a faded black and white photo on the wall outside his class. So this is 1948. This is my uh, grandmother, Vivian Tenedal, right here. I really didn't get to get much, get a chance to talk to her. Um, she passed away in 2007, so um, I really didn't get a chance to, you know, talk to her about that. Blackstar hopes his grandma had a good experience here when so many did not. That's reporting from KOSU's Allison Herrera, who visited Riverside Indian School, along with NPR's Sequoia Carrillo. And Sequoia, I'm curious, does the school teach its own history? You know, dealing with the painful memories of the school's history is something that most of the teachers and administrators we talked to had trouble articulating. And the principal flat out told us that they're not really interested in looking backwards. But there are those who think that the painful past should be addressed officially. 
In talking to survivors from the old days at Riverside, all of them want the wrongdoing remembered. They just differ on how to do it. Some say tear the schools down. Some say just teach it in the classroom. Many see the schools as good places now and that they leave the students better off than they found them. And based on what you saw, do you think that's true that students are now better off? Allison and I talked to recent Riverside alums as well as alums and current students from other federal residential schools. And it seems like, yes, recent alumni often talk about the connections they made with teachers or school trips they got to take while at Riverside. And the school itself has a Facebook group of more than 3,000 alums who proudly tout the school's motto, once a brave, always a brave, and ask when the next graduation is so that they can attend and support the students. One alum active in the Facebook group lives in Farmington, New Mexico, and she spoke with us over Zoom. Here's Allison again. Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, well, my name is Leandra Johnson, and I'm from... Her she graduated from, from Riverside 15 um, years ago after leaving her public high school in Bloomfield, New Mexico. Educational-wise, I learned more. When she attended Riverside, Johnson said a little bit of the school's troubled history was included in the curriculum. She also learned Native American history at Riverside that she was never taught at her public school in New Mexico. She said Riverside was just better. You had that support, I guess you could say, you had that support from your other peers that were around your age, pushing you to graduate, pushing you to do better. Johnson remembers feeling more comfortable at Riverside because she was around other Native students and teachers. Now, she has three children of her own. Her oldest, Adrian, is a shy seventh grader who's enrolled in public school. He likes science and video games. Zelda, Super Mario. What about Fortnite? No, not a big fan. No. Okay. <laughs> One of the challenges to getting a good education in his rural hometown is reliable Wi-Fi. That was Allison Herrera again. And Sequoia, did you find that lack of Wi-Fi impacted your experience when visiting the residential school? Definitely. In fact, in order to speak with us, Leandra and Adrian had to sit in the parking lot of a local library closer to the center of town to connect over Zoom. We wanted to know what about Riverside, where Adrian now wants to go, makes him want to leave home and move hundreds of miles away. Here's what he said. Because you can learn more about your culture. My mom went there and I just want to experience it. And that is the irony of this story, a school with such a troubled past that once families were forced to send their children against their will, has now become a place where they want their kids to go in hopes it will give them a better life. That's NPR Sequoia Carrillo, who reported on Riverside Indian School along with KOSU's Allison Herrera. Sequoia, thanks for bringing us the story. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. 
from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast sunny right now in the Boston area, still mild, 79 degrees. Overnight tonight, rain, maybe some thunderstorms as well, down around 60. Tomorrow should make it to the low to mid 70s. Showers early in the day, overcast for the bulk of the day. And then Wednesday, partly sunny skies, a few clouds around, maybe rain in the afternoon. Again, 79 degrees now in Boston at 459. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Yemen's nine-year-long war is finally winding down, but the human toll has been significant. One monitor group estimates 150,000 people have been killed. And the UN says that at least that many people in addition have died from malnutrition and other effects of the war. A look from inside Yemen coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, no one said dealing with inflation is easy. Most countries that have fought inflation went from high to moderate inflation with minimal economic pain. Not one got to low inflation without pain. The path to a stable economy coming up. The state of Georgia wants to boost its literacy rates by embracing what's known as the science of reading movement. I can see it working. I can see it being beneficial and helping the light bulb click for the kids. Also, remembering the biologists who recorded the haunting whale songs more than 50 years ago. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President and 2024 GOP hopeful Donald Trump has arrived in Miami and will be arraigned in a federal courthouse there tomorrow. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports his campaign is trying to turn the episode into an opportunity. The former president faces unprecedented criminal charges over his handling of classified materials. But those close to his campaign say he will not give an inch. Former aides like Brian Lanza, who remains in very close contact with the campaign, acknowledge it's a challenge. But he says the former president and his team also see this as an opportunity to rally support around a key campaign message, that there is a double standard of treatment at the Justice Department that there's a dual track of judicial system in the United States that appears to be you know, thumb on a scale towards conservatives and benefiting liberals. The campaign is already fundraising on the effort, and Trump's expected to publicly address the indictment several hours after appearing in court. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Trump has been indicted on 37 counts of mishandling documents, including classified materials and refusing to turn them over to authorities. 
The Biden administration is pledging its full support in repairing a section of Interstate 95 that collapsed in Philadelphia yesterday. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports local officials say it could take months to rebuild the heavily traveled stretch of interstate. Speaking at an engineering conference, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said the collapse is a cruel reminder of the importance of infrastructure. He also pledged full federal support to help the city rebuild that section of the interstate. We've got this emergency relief funding and uh, we can fund and reimburse the uh, activities that are going on to swiftly uh, get that uh, road back to normal. A tanker truck crashed and caught fire under a section of I-95, causing the highway to partially collapse. Officials say the southbound lanes were also compromised due to heat from the fire. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. J.P. Morgan Chase has settled a major lawsuit with victims of Jeffrey Epstein for $290 million. Epstein was one of the bank's customers for more than a decade. As NPR's David Gurr reports, plaintiffs allege J.P. Morgan helped facilitate his sex trafficking operation. Attorneys for the plaintiffs call the terms of the settlement historic. According to a person familiar with the agreement, but not authorized to speak about it publicly, the bank is not admitting wrongdoing. But in a statement, J.P. Morgan Chase said, quote, any association with Epstein was a mistake and we regret it. And the bank believes this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors. It comes after J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, was deposed for more than five hours about the firm's ties to Epstein. In 2013, Epstein moved his accounts to Deutsche Bank. That firm settled a similar lawsuit recently. Two other related lawsuits are still pending. David Gura, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Somerville will raise its Juneteenth flag this afternoon at City Hall. The hour-long event begins at 5.30. The Juneteenth holiday recognizes when enslaved people in Texas were delivered the news about their freedom two years after it was already written into law after the Civil War. Somerville's director of the Racial and Social Justice Program, Denise Molina Caper, says the event goes beyond Texas. The legacies of slavery and inequality reverberate throughout our society today. So it's not just limited to Texas to commemorate and honor it. I think it's the responsibility of all of us to acknowledge it. Somerville's Ten Hills neighborhood was one of the largest slaveholding estates in New England during the colonial era. The Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife is asking people to report wild turkey sightings. The Summer Wild Turkey Survey will help the state monitor the animal's population and estimate fall harvest potential. David Scarpitti is a wildlife biologist with Mass Wildlife. He says observing young turkeys in their first few months of life is key to the study. They're really vulnerable when they're small and very, very young. But as they get to be, you know, three or four months old, um, their survivorship is really quite high at that point. Wildlife officials say the wild turkey population in Massachusetts has grown significantly since the 1970s. It's currently estimated to be between 30,000 and 35,000 birds. One of New Hampshire's key tourist spots is off limits today because of a diesel spill over the weekend. Diesel overflowed from a boat on Lake Sunapee Harbor and spilled into the water. Firefighters in the State Department of Environmental Services were able to contain the spill. The harbor is closed to boats today, while cleanup crews attempt to skim the diesel off the water. The town says businesses along the shore remain open. In the forecast, some sunshine still out there right now. Look for clouds to overtake the region overnight tonight. Temperatures right down around 60 degrees. Then for tomorrow, some showers to start. Lots of clouds in the afternoon, about 73 degrees for a high. Higher than that right now, 79 degrees in the Boston area at 506.
WBUR supporters include Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The fight against inflation has entered a tougher phase. We'll hear what new research tells us about the economy and why lower inflation might come with more pain in just a few moments. First, though, we're going to take a rare look inside Yemen, where there are signs that a nine-year war could be winding down. The country, though, has been through a lot. The U.N. says nearly 6 million people have been displaced and over 200,000 have died from malnutrition or lack of health care, conditions that continue very much today. To remind you of where it all started, in late 2014, militants backed by Iran rose up and eventually ousted the government. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates sent planes and troops with equipment and intel from the U.S. that greatly intensified the fighting and suffering. NPR's Fatma Tanis is there now and joins us from Taiz. Hi, Fatma. Hi, Elsa. So let's just start there where you are in Taiz. Can you tell us a little bit about the city and how it reflects so much of what's happened in this war? Right. So Taiz is a frontline city. It's divided in half. Most of it is controlled by the Houthis, the militant group that took over the capital of Yemen and other key cities several years ago. A physical wall separates the Houthi-controlled part from the areas that are controlled by the Saudi-backed, internationally recognized Yemeni government. Uh, So entire neighborhoods and families have been living divided for years here. And this city has seen some of the worst of the war. You can see it as you go around. Um, reminders of those dark days. Saudi airstrikes destroyed some of the historical heritage here and killed many civilians. And the Houthis put mines in a lot of places that even recently are hurting people, especially children. But in the last month or so, the fighting has quieted down pretty much uh, as the peace talks are ongoing. But it's not set in stone yet, so people are still on the edge as they think it could flare up again any time. You mentioned that families have been living divided there for years. What is life like in a divided city? I mean, what have you heard from people? Right, so I spoke with one young woman, 20-year-old college student, Sahar She summed it up saying that life in Taiz is pretty bad right now. She says the division has created all kinds of problems, like the economy, water and electricity services are bad, the security is bad here, the education level, she says, has gone down for schools and universities. Uh, And even 15-minute distances now take at least six hours by car because of the road blockades and checkpoints. That has really slowed life down a lot and made basic needs much more expensive. Now, for Sahar, the war has also defined her life and her goals. Uh, here she is again. She's studying biomedical engineering in college because she wants to help the many children who lost limbs here in Taiz due to the mines. Uh, she spoke passionately about her country and its potential and really wants to be part of the healing. Wow. Well, I understand that you've also met some of the youngest victims of the war there. You went to a hospital in the southern city of Aden. What did you see there? 
Well, the lack of access to food and extreme poverty definitely reflects itself in the hospitals here. I visited a malnutrition center where doctors are still seeing high levels of emaciated babies and children. Um, I spoke to one mother who lives in a camp for displaced people in Aden. She said that even though her husband works, they struggle to feed their children more than one meal a day and often have to distract them from their hunger by putting them to sleep. She was at the hospital after her one and a half-year-old daughter nearly died from malnutrition. Um, the baby had been receiving treatments for 10 days and was doing much better, but still had a long way to go. You know, she was unable to react as her mother tried to engage her with toys. And unfortunately, many families in Yemen continue to struggle to find food. Well, if we can step back, if you can just remind us, like, who are the people fighting in this war? And where exactly does this war stand at this point? Well, it's basically a stalemate now between two sides. The Iran-backed Houthis overthrew the Saudi-backed Yemeni government nearly a decade ago. Um, The U.S. supported the Saudis for a while with weapons and intelligence, but took a step back because of the high civilian deaths caused by Saudi airstrikes. Now, in the past year, there's been a period of ceasefire and peace talks, so there's been generally a lull in the fighting. Uh, I'll also note that there's still al-Qaeda here in Yemen, and that's something the U.S. watches closely. So then how much hope is there that there will be an actual end to this war? Well, there are signs of progress. You know, Iran and Saudi Arabia mended their ties and Saudi delegations have been in the Houthi-controlled capital, Sana'a. Both parties have said that they are serious about the talks. But what I'm hearing from Yemenis is that they don't trust that it'll last. And for those who dreamt of democracy in Yemen, it feels further away than ever. One of those people is Basmal Ali. He manages a seaside cafe in Aden. Uh, He lived in Louisiana for a while before moving back to Yemen to take care of his parents. And here's what he said. Yemen is important to the USA. I'm afraid that it will lose its situation in Yemen because it's not giving Yemen any attention. He's saying that he's especially concerned about what he sees as lack of American interest in Yemen. And he says that if that continues, things could get worse, even if the war ends. That is NPR's Fatma Tanis in Taiz, Yemen. Thank you so much, Fatma. Thank you, Elsa. The Federal Reserve has been fighting inflation for years now, taking steps like raising interest rates. So far, it's been working, but experts worry about possible side effects. If history is any indication, we could be entering the hardest part of the inflation fight. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith is here to explain. And Stacey, uh, put this moment in perspective for us. Inflation right now is at 4.9 percent. What should it be? Well, we want to see inflation at about 2%. That's kind of seen as the inflation sweet spot. It means prices are rising at about 2% a year, so things stay pretty affordable. The economy is kind of growing at a slow, steady pace. Uh, The U.S. was in that sweet spot for decades, but right now, as you say, inflation in the U.S. is at nearly 5%. And the big question is, can the Federal Reserve get inflation back to that 2% sweet spot without causing a lot of economic pain. But when you look at the last year, inflation has fallen a lot. There has not been a recession. Unemployment is near historic lows. Things look good. So what's the concern? 
Well, it looks like the inflation fight gets harder the lower you go. So last year, like you say, inflation was over 9%. It's already down to about 5%. But the last few percentage points could be a much rougher ride. Um, There's this new research out from uh, researchers at the University of North Carolina and Stanford. And they looked at more than 80 countries that have battled inflation. And they found that it is much harder to get from moderate inflation to low inflation than it is to get from high inflation to moderate inflation. What actually happened is these countries tried to push inflation lower and lower. Yeah. So some of the countries that were battling really high inflation, you know, 60 percent, 80 percent countries like Argentina and Israel, almost all of them were actually able to get that inflation down below 40 percent, which is considered moderate inflation. And they were able to do it pretty fast in roughly a year. Um, But getting from moderate inflation down to like a low single digit inflation rate, that was much harder. Um, Economist Peter Blair Henry, one of the study's authors, found that out of the 56 countries that fought the moderate inflation battle, only a handful actually achieved the low interest rates that they were hoping for. There were only five episodes of successfully reducing moderate inflation. All of them painful. Unemployment went up, growth goes down. And the countries that were successful, which include South Korea and Egypt, they all saw their economy slow down. They all saw job losses. um, And those fights took a lot longer, several years on average. And do they know why moderate inflation is so much harder to fight than high inflation? Well, economist Peter Blair Henry thinks it has to do with the two root causes of inflation. So one of the root causes is psychological. I mean, inflation changes our behavior as as consumers, as business owners. For example, if you expect prices are going to keep rising a lot, you might ask for a bigger raise than you normally would. Or if a restaurant's printing menus, they might print menus with extra high prices if they expect their costs are going to go up. And that has this spiral effect. If you can just break that cycle, you can get rid of big, a huge part of the, the, the inflation problem and just be left with the structural part. What does he mean by the structural part? Is that something we should worry about? Yes, the structural part, that's the second root cause of inflation. And, and to solve that, you essentially need to take money out of the economy, get people to spend less. So, you know, when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it makes it more expensive to borrow money. So people spend less, uh, businesses sell less stuff to people, and then those businesses stop expanding, they stop hiring, they often lay people off. So what does all this mean as the Federal Reserve plans to meet this week? Well, it means that if the Federal Reserve can manage to get us from what was nearly double-digit inflation a year ago down to the 2% target without a recession or a major spike in unemployment, that is, you know, it's pulled off kind of a minor economic miracle. Um, That said, though, you know, so far so good. Inflation is falling. The economy has held strong. But history is a powerful indicator, and we are seeing some signs that businesses are selling less, and of course, layoffs have been happening. But hopefully, the U.S. can be the exception that proves the moderate inflation rule. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith. Thank you. Thanks, Ari.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up next on All Things Considered, remembering biologist Roger Payne. And then in about 20 minutes, the science of reading. It was an update on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than a half percent today. The S&P jumped to a 13-month high today, picking up nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq grew by more than one and a half percent. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Tap and listen to WBR anywhere the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animals in need by donating to animal welfare organizations, rehabilitation farms, wildlife centers, and nonprofit rescue organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com good share of sunshine out there right now. Overnight tonight, clouding up, maybe some thunderstorms down around 60 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, could make it to 73 degrees. It should be a gray day, though. Showers, especially in the morning hours. For Wednesday, partly sunny skies, maybe some rain in the afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees now in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The man behind the iconic environmental album, Songs of the Humpback Whale, has died. Biologist Roger Payne recorded the haunting whale songs with his collaborators more than 50 years ago. The album became the most popular nature recording in history. It energized the Save the Whales movement and pushed Congress to pass the landmark Marine Mammal Protection Act. Roger Payne died at his home in Vermont on Saturday. He was 88. WBR's Barbara Moran spoke with Payne last year and produced this audio postcard about his life's work. I'm Roger Payne. I'm a biologist. I study whales in the oceans and spend a lot of time worrying about the future of the oceans and of life on Earth. The first time I saw a whale up close, I was working at Tufts University and I heard an announcement that a whale had washed ashore on Revere Beach and I decided I wanted to see it. Somebody else had carved their initials in the side of it and somebody else had 
stuffed a cigar butt in the blowhole. And I just, I stood looking at this animal. It was perfectly clear to me that nature was under the most appalling assaults, and most people didn't seem to know anything about it. And I thought, what could I do? And I thought, whales, that's what I could do. There was this fellow in Bermuda named Frank Watlington who worked for the Navy doing something secret. And uh, he had heard sounds that he thought were whales, and they were quite elaborate. And so I went with my former wife, and we got a ride. As we boarded the boat, Frank took us through the engine room and took out of his pocket a tape, a magnetic tape, and he threaded the tape across the heads of the recorder and he hit the on switch and then leaning forward and putting the headphones on my head, he said, I think these are humpback whales. And what I heard completely blew my mind. I had never heard anything in nature that was remotely as extraordinary a performance. Here, finally, was something that could get enough of the attention of the world and make it possible to get people concerned about whales. People knew at the time that a whale was a big blubbery animal, and that's about it. We were killing 33,000 large whales each year. It was dead obvious that whales were on the brink of extinction. I decided that I wanted to make a record almost at once. I just thought, the world has to hear this. That record took off, and it became the most successful recording of natural history sounds ever. A lot of people weep when they hear these sounds. It hits them emotionally. And I've never wept when hearing them, but I've come damn close. And um, I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to spend my life. We're trying to translate whale speak. Do I think it's going to be the same sort of full, rich language that humans have? No, I certainly don't. But I think it will have some very complex and interesting things. I would love to ask them simple things, you know. But I would say, you know, sing. Or, again, <laughs> sorry would be a good word to say. Once a whale speaks to humanity, no matter how simple its message, it has a chance, I think, to get the attention of the world in a way that it just desperately needs to have. Mm -hmm.
And once that happens, I think all sorts of change will occur. And once that begins, then I am filled with hope. Biologist Roger Payne died at his home in Vermont Saturday. He was 88 years old. To read Barbara Moran's extended conversation with Roger Payne and see photos of him at work, visit WBUR.org. Today is Valentine's Day in Brazil. There it's known as Lovers or Couples Day, and clearly Brazilians don't celebrate it in February. NPR's Kerry Kahn explains. Flavia Tavares and her husband Wallace Alves, barefoot and dressed in white, stand at the water's edge below one of Rio de Janeiro's most picturesque peaks. Isso. Their photographer urges them to give each other sexy looks, get closer, she says, clicking away. The couple has been married seven years. I got up at 5 a.m. and battled Rio's terrible traffic, so this is her gift, Alvis laughs. Five other couples were shooting Gia dos Namorados Lover's Day photos, too. But why not celebrate on February 14th like most countries? Photographer Luciana Sousa, shooting a gender reveal party down the beach, explains. There are just too many parties then, she says. It's carnaval, and no one wants to be tied to just one person. Her boyfriend, Charles Sanchez, laughs. He just made it official and asked her to marry him. She said yes. Lover's Day is big business in Brazil. Used for selling everything like cell phones in this ad. Sales this year are expected to hit half a billion U.S. dollars, according to a national trade group. But why June 12th? The story goes that back in 1949, some savvy Sao Paulo businessmen, hoping to boost mid-year sales, picked the day before the Catholic celebration of St. Anthony, popularly said to be the savior of marriages. At St. Anthony Church in downtown Rio, Father Gerardo Bellocchio says many believe Anthony made peace between a sparring couple. But Bellocchio says Anthony performs many more miracles than that. He doesn't object to him being used for Lover's Day business. Sales are even up at the church's small store, where 67-year-old parishioner Celia Regina is buying a small St. Anthony statue. She laughs. You have to turn the statue on its head if you're hoping to find a partner or a spouse. Sure, she would like to find a new love today, she says. God willing, of course. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. This is NPR News. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. When the Beatles came to America in 1964, many people took their pictures, as Paul McCartney took theirs. With the police on horseback, and then behind the barricades, the kids, you know, all the fans. So it was great photographic material. The Beatles' arrival as it looked through McCartney's camera on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The police chief in Miami says they don't expect any problems tomorrow when former President Donald Trump is arraigned in federal court on charges over his alleged mishandling of classified government materials. Authorities are preparing for up to 50,000 people to show up outside the courthouse, and Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is calling on anyone planning to protest to do so peacefully. We're working with partners, our law enforcement partners at all levels, uh, to make sure that we're communicating, to make sure that we're prepared, to, to make sure we're sharing information, um, and ultimately to ensure that tomorrow goes off uh, without any hitch. Trump has already arrived in Miami for tomorrow's court appearance. He's been rallying his supporters to show up to protest his prosecution on 37 felony charges. A once Democratic stronghold, Miami has shifted to the right in terms of its politics in recent years. Protesters blocked Interior Secretary Deb Holland from celebrating yesterday environmental protections for culturally significant land in New Mexico. NPR's Jeff Brady tells us they were upset the Biden administration is preventing oil and gas drilling near a national park. Video on Twitter showed a group of Navajo landowners chanting and blocking Holland from Chaco Culture National Historical Park, a place indigenous people consider sacred. The Biden administration recently formalized a 10-mile protection boundary around the World Heritage Site. Holland was there to celebrate that. To see any road into any of our national parks or our public lands blocked was heartbreaking because our public lands belong to all Americans. Leaders of the Navajo Nation supported the protesters who wanted a smaller boundary so they can develop their property. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. The Dow up half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Brockton man accused of shooting a Boston police officer Friday night is being held without bail. About 50 Boston police officers attended today's arraignment of 23-year-old John Lazare. A not guilty plea was entered on Lazare's behalf. He's due back in court later this month. According to police, the officer who was wounded was looking for a robbery suspect at the time of the shooting. That officer, whose name has not been released, left the hospital yesterday. New England's largest energy utility ever source broke ground today on the country's first utility-operated networked geothermal system. The climate-friendly project will use deep wells, underground pipes, and heat pumps. They will heat and cool 37 buildings in Framingham without using fossil fuels. WBR's Miriam Wasser has more. Figuring out how to quickly and equitably get homes and businesses off of fossil fuels remains one of the biggest climate challenges in the region. With this pilot project, environmentalists hope Eversource can model a new business plan for gas utilities that provides cleaner and cheaper home heating and cooling for customers. Audrey Shulman is the co-executive director of HEAT. 
the environmental nonprofit that first pitched this idea to Eversource several years ago. This is a way of sort of offering them candy in the direction that we want them to go. <laughs> and I uh, hope that they head that way with all speed. Eversource will soon begin the main phase of construction and plans to have the system up and running by November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Fitness on the Greenway in Boston is back for its ninth season starting this afternoon. The Greenway Conservancy is partnering with 15 local fitness businesses to offer free classes this summer, beginning with their first class, which is happening right now. Classes range from strength training to Zumba to yoga and kung fu. Abigail Purvis manages the program. She says the classes are accessible to all ages and fitness levels. Healthy living is not just exercise, it's not just meditation, it's also being able to relax in an urban oasis where the birds are singing and there's beautiful trees and the lawns all organically maintained. It all wraps into our mission of being a you know, sustainable contemporary urban park. A full schedule of classes is available at the Rose Kennedy Greenway w- website. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. In the forecast, breezy and mild into the evening hours. Pretty nice out there right now. Overnight, rainy should fall to about 60. Then for tomorrow, some rain in the morning, showers during the day, but mostly lots of clouds in the afternoon. Highs about 73 degrees. 78 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Authorities in Miami say they are prepared for possible protests tomorrow outside the city's federal courthouse. Former President Trump will appear in court to face 37 counts related to his mishandling of classified government documents. In an interview with Republican activist Roger Stone on Sunday, Trump encouraged his supporters to turn out. And we need strength at this point. And everyone's afraid to do anything. They're afraid to talk. And they have to go out and they have to uh, protest peacefully. NPR's Greg Allen joins us now to talk about the security preparations in Miami. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what are local officials saying about how they're getting ready for tomorrow? Well, uh, we heard from Miami Mayor Francis Suarez and Police Chief Manny Morales today in a briefing. They provided relatively few details. Morales said his officers are prepared to handle anywhere between 5,000 and as many as 50,000 protesters. He said they are working closely with federal and state law enforcement authorities. Uh, They're all setting up a unified command post to oversee security outside the courthouse. But Morales was deliberately vague on his plans, even on basic questions, such as whether they will have barricades to use or create uh, separate zones for protesters who are foreign against the indictments. And, uh, but he said he was confident that Miami police are ready. Make no mistake about it, we're taking this, uh, this event extremely serious. We know that there is a potential of things uh, taking a turn for the worst, but that's not the Miami way. Wait, what does he mean by that? What's the Miami way? 
Uh, yeah, I, I well, I think Morales and Mayor Suarez both said that that means that the city, they use that to mean that the city's experienced in handling protests. They both talked about how the city handled protests in 2020 following the murder of George George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Um, and as for Demar, Morales says he expected protesters would be respectful of police. And he said his officers have experience using crowd control tactics that allow people to exercise their constitutional rights while at the same time avoiding violence. Okay, that said, I mean, elsewhere on this show, we talked about the inflammatory posts on social media by some Trump supporters, some of whom have called for violence. I have to imagine that that's also of concern to Miami leaders, right? Well, one would think so. Uh, Chief Morales said he's taking it all seriously, but he says he's aware of the social media posts and he hasn't seen any that he believes are credible enough to cause him real concern. Uh, Mayor uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez was reminded about the last time that Donald Trump called on his supporters to turn out in protest on January 6th after he was defeated of his reelection. And he was uh, uh, Suarez was asked if he call, if he'd thought about calling the former president to ask him to calm the situation. I have not spoken to him. I don't have his phone number. But I will tell you that during the George Floyd protest, there were tens of thousands or or thousands of people on our streets in Miami. Uh, We were prepared. I think we were a model for how to deal with those protests. Suarez says there were no uh, there was no serious violence and relatively few arrests out of those protests. He's hoping this will be a repeat of that. On a side note, I should point out that Mayor Suarez is a Republican and is considering jumping into the presidential race himself. Huh. OK, well, real briefly, what else can you tell us about timing for tomorrow? Well, there are various calls for protests circulating on social media, some beginning as early as 10 a.m. outside the federal courthouse. A small group of supporters of Donald Trump were on hand outside his Doral Golf Club today, where he's staying tonight. Mm -hmm. Trump is scheduled to go before a magistrate judge at 3 and then make a statement tomorrow night after he flies back to his Bedminster Golf Club in New Jersey. All right. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome. What's the best way to teach kids to read? In Mississippi, educators made a big change about a decade ago, shifting from a popular approach called balanced literacy to something known as the science of reading movement. That switch paid off with a big jump in student reading proficiency. Now, state lawmakers in Georgia hope that a similar pivot will help student literacy in their state. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Grant Blankenship reports. All right, how many sounds do you get? Four. Four. It's summer. But at John Lewis Elementary School in Bibb County, Quantisha Pittman is teaching third graders to build words. Good job. And then right after that shh, Sam, what do you hear? Good job. What's the word again? The kids got to shrub after learning the code of sounds, the phonemes that build it. Going forward, 30 or 45 minutes of every single reading class in Bibb County will be spent building this phonemic awareness, a core skill in what's called structured literacy, or broadly, the science of reading. When Missy Purcell taught reading in Georgia's largest school district in Gwinnett County several years ago, it was not like this. She used balanced literacy, like most schools in the country. I'll be the first to admit, I was a balanced literacy fangirl. She's not alone. For three decades, a balanced literacy publishing industry worth billions has been centered around a professor from Teachers College Columbia in New York named Lucy Calkins. The idea was to make reading fun by giving students special books where pictures are tied to text. We call them patterned books. And so it's like, you know, the fence is purple, the door is purple, the swing is purple. So much purple. And so this word I've never seen before 
Don't sound it out. Look at the picture and guess. It means purple? This is called cueing. It's how Purcell's own son was taught. But he never could read the last page, which didn't follow the pattern. Without a purple cue, he was lost. Purcell says when she saw that, she knew balanced literacy hadn't taught her son to read. After he was diagnosed with dyslexia, he was taught structured literacy. And Purcell saw it worked. But also, it just began to dawn on me the number of kids who were sitting in classrooms. Not just kids with dyslexia. Lots of kids weren't learning to read with balanced literacy. Whose parents just hadn't stumbled into some random group of knowledgeable people, which is what happened to me. In the four years that followed, Purcell joined a community who would lobby for science of reading laws. Georgia legislators heard the lobbyists and saw statistics showing something like 40 percent of Georgia third graders read below grade level. Two state laws mandating science of reading instruction for students and training for teachers passed this year. Ellen Register teaches in Grady County on the Florida border, where teachers are in year two of science of reading training. She says she was shocked the material was new to her. Because I have a master's degree. I have a reading endorsement, and I didn't even know all of this. And after a year of teaching like this, she's convinced. I can see it working. I can see it being beneficial and helping the light bulb click for the kids. Not everyone is convinced this works, or for people like Lisa Morgan, that it's even new. Yes, we all need some phonics. Every child needs to learn phonics. Morgan teaches kindergarten and is the president of the Georgia Association of Educators. She worries the focus on the science of reading goes too far, takes out the fun. Teaching children to read is not just a science. It's also an art. I want them to want to read and to love to read. Lobbyist teacher and mom, Missy Purcell, says that's the balanced literacy dream. And yeah. That would be great. But really what's going to get you to love something is that you're successful at it. And she says in reading, success follows explicit, structured work. Mississippi made this change years ago. People call the jump in reading proficiency there the Mississippi miracle. Across the country, school districts are also making the change. Georgia plans to complete its rollout of science of reading standards by 2025. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Scientists are warning that shorebirds are disappearing along the Atlantic coast. A study published this spring by U.S. and Canadian researchers shows populations dropping by more than 50 percent since 1980. They've issued an urgent call for conservation. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen takes us to a place built for birds. Janet Tebow deliberately walks where people are not allowed. A sandy, shadeless island in the Charleston Harbor covered with tiny tracks. I got my binoculars, got my spotting scope. The wildlife biologist is keeping a close eye on the intimate lives of sea and shorebirds. All right, I think we have another nest. I see two birds incubating. Tebow works for the Department of Natural Resources, which owns the island, and closes it for summer so birds can nest safely in the sand, away from predators and people. It's a critical time for the seabird sanctuary known as Crab Bank. The eroding island was wiped away by a hurricane in 2017, leaving thousands of birds without a place to nest for four seasons, until a reconstructed sanctuary emerged last summer. 
the birds are still finding their way back. Okay, we got chicks. So this is a freshly hatched American oyster catcher chick. There's a, uh, the second egg is starting to pip out, so the chick is breaking the shell. A fluffy beige and white chick with big feet stares at the speckled egg beside him. The sibling egg is cracked and a barely visible beak peeps. The baby oyster catcher's beaks will eventually grow bright orange and flat to pry open the shell delicacies for which they're named. Nearby, graceful skimmers belly flop into the sand to create a nest. Tiny yellow-billed least turns dangle fish as they fly to entice a mate. And white-bellied Wilson's plovers sprout new plumage for their big date. They're just trying to raise a family. Tebow is pleased by what she sees. She hopes this season, Crab Bank will surpass the more than 500 nests she helped track last summer. Although originally, it saw 10 times as many. She worries about the future of ocean birds. It's their life, you know, their life depends on these, these spits of sand. Chris Crowley is concerned too. He gives wildlife tours and fears birds are being squeezed out. Coastal squeeze is the idea that as the water continues to rise, the birds have nowhere to go. Crowley was part of the fight to save Crab Bank after it literally went under following a hurricane. Shortly after, the Army Corps of Engineers was dredging the harbor and found sediment to rebuild the island. And, uh, and then we just watched Crab Bank manifest out of a beneficial dredge spoil spewing pipe. The pipe spewed for seven weeks, building a bigger 32-acre island. Project manager Jeff Levesey says it was eye-opening. I'm an engineer. We know about moving material and that type of thing, but, but to learn about the birds and the habitat. He says the Army Corps has set a goal of beneficially reusing 70% of all dredge materials. Crowley would like to see the state, which already spends millions renourishing beaches for people, set aside sand for creatures that need it. This is real wild birds you know, fighting to survive. He watches nesting on Crab Bank by boat. A white egret swoops down and elegantly perches beside him. Birds, he says, deserve our help. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston, South Carolina. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on WBUR, we remember the flamboyant billionaire who built his political career in Italy on a media empire that began with a striptease game show. And then in about 15 minutes, J.P. Morgan Chase has settled a lawsuit with victims of Jeffrey Epstein, who was a client of the firm for more than a decade. It's 549. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Red Sox launch a six-game homestand tonight as the Colorado Rockies come to Fenway Park. Boston will put James Paxton on the mound, and Colorado will counter with Connor Siebold, who used to be with the Sox, but was traded to the Rockies in January. 7:10 start time tonight. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, former President Trump is expected to appear in federal court in Miami on charges tied to his possession of classified documents after his presidency. Listen for live special coverage at 3 tomorrow on WBUR. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education.
Learn more at umassmed.edu. In July, Florida will ban smartphones in every public school classroom in the state. They cannot help but sneak over to different websites, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. They cannot resist it, so we need to have some level of control. How smartphones impact learning and whether banning them from the classroom is the answer. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Philadelphia has had a tough week. First, smoke from wildfires in Canada hovered above the city for days, keeping people indoors. Then yesterday morning, a big section of I-95 collapsed after a tanker truck caught fire beneath a bridge in the northeast corner of town. From member station WHYY in Philadelphia, Aaron Moselle brings us the latest. Plumes of black smoke billowed above the highway on Sunday as firefighters worked to bring the blaze under control. A day later, I-95 remains closed in both directions as crews embark on repairing the damaged span, which carries 160,000 vehicles a day. The collapse will also complicate trips up and down the East Coast, especially for long-haul truckers and summer vacationers. Mike Carroll is Pennsylvania's Secretary of Transportation. He says crews will be on demolition duty for the next few days. The engineering and the inspection of the southbound bridge indicated its comprehensive as a result of the fire. The I-beams are incapable of supporting the traffic, and so that structure has to be removed, and it will be starting today. This stretch of highway is pretty new. The collapsed section was part of a $200 million reconstruction project that wrapped up four years ago. State officials say the span was considered in good condition earlier this year. Investigators have yet to say what caused the road to collapse, but the tanker that caught fire was carrying more than 8,000 gallons of fuel, creating an inferno that could have gotten hot enough to melt the bridge's steel supports. In the meantime, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro has issued a disaster declaration. He says it'll take months to repair the highway. As we rebuild I-95, Secretary Buttigieg has assured me that there will be absolutely no delay in getting federal funds deployed to quickly help us rebuild this critical artery. I-95, of course, is a critical roadway. It supports our economy and plays an important role in folks' everyday lives. Take Allison Karabic. She's the catering manager at Sweet Lucy's Smokehouse, a barbecue restaurant that sits close enough to the site that she can hear the helicopters buzzing overhead. Karabic lives in a suburb just outside of Philly. Her commute to work usually takes 15 minutes. She says it took about 45 minutes traveling on back roads today. She says it'll be an adjustment if that becomes her new normal. My husband wouldn't be able to go into work as early because he would be taking our kids to summer camp and school and I would be leaving a lot earlier to come down to work, make sure we have everything we need here at the office and everything's taken care of. She's also concerned about the business located near an exit on I-95. She's been fielding a lot of calls from customers. They want to know how to get to the restaurant now. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Moselle in Philadelphia. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi died today at the age of 86. Silvia Pajoli reports that Berlusconi's flamboyant lifestyle left a mark on popular culture, but also tainted Italy's image in the world. A born showman, Berlusconi liked to brag his career began as a crooner on cruise ships. 
From construction and real estate, he built an empire, TV networks, newspapers, publishing houses, a top soccer team, and much more. It all started with a 1970s game show where the caller's right answer prompted a housewife in the studio to strip a piece of clothing. Eric Gandini is the director of the documentary Videocracy. If someone had told me that this was the beginning of a new empire, a huge media empire, and a new political order, where the, the, the owner of this media empire became also the, the prime minister, and that this whole, this whole story would start with a striptease program, I would laugh. Thanks to political patronage, Berlusconi created a commercial TV monopoly. With a carousel of soap operas and scantily clad showgirls, his networks molded an adoring audience into a virtual electorate. In the early 1990s, when bribery scandals toppled the political establishment, Berlusconi filled the vacuum. With his rags-to-riches story, he sold many Italians a rosy dream of prosperity and lower taxes. Three months later, Berlusconi swept to power. And over the next two decades, he showed the world that humility was not one of his virtues. I am by far the best prime minister Italy ever had. But it was an open secret that Berlusconi had entered politics to safeguard his empire. A key tool, says Alexander Stile, author of the book on Berlusconi, The Sack of Rome, was an electoral law that allowed party chiefs to pick candidates. So suddenly you've seen this profusion of beautiful girls and fashion models and TV stars and showgirls. But the principle is that they're there as ornament and therefore that the function of parliament is one of the three branches of government which should have a kind of checking effect on the executive has become an empty power. With no conflict of interest legislation, Berlusconi not only kept his TV networks, as prime minister he won control of all state-run broadcasting. Maurizio Viroli, who teaches politics and government at the University of Texas, describes the power Berlusconi had as tyranny. A power that uh, uh, no political leader has ever been able to concentrate uh, in his own hands in any democratic uh, or liberal country in history. That's why I use the word tyranny. Berlusconi chose a former nude calendar girl as Minister of Gender Equality and appointed his tax lawyer as finance minister. He developed close personal ties with Russian leader Vladimir Putin and the late Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi. But abroad, Berlusconi was often mocked for his permatan, hair transplants, and facelifts. And while his schoolboy pranks, off-color jokes, and racist remarks left him increasingly shunned on the international stage, he became the longest-serving prime minister in Italian history. Foreign commentators could not fathom the secret of Berlusconi's popularity. Professor Viroli calls it Italians' dislike for moral principles. When they see someone who tells them it is right not to have principles, to disregard civic duties, to violate the laws, they love him. Berlusconi survived multiple corruption trials, tawdry tales of orgies, and pain for sex with a minor. Ultimately, when the European debt crisis hit Italy in 2011, it was the stock markets that forced him to step down. His political career came to an ignominious end in 2014 when he was ousted from Parliament following a definitive conviction for evading some $10 million in taxes. 
Given his age, 77, his four-year jail term was commuted to four hours a week, assisting elderly dementia patients. When Berlusconi left office, Italy's economy was stagnant and debt was skyrocketing, but his personal wealth was said to have tripled. Just like the tycoon lampooned by comedian Roberto Benigni. Yo sono il boss, il imprenditore, il proprietario del partito dell'amore. I am the boss. I have banks and newspapers, villas and castles. I have women galore. Everything is mine. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're ending the day with some sunshine around the Boston area. Showers could push through the region tonight. Temperatures down about 61 degrees. And for tomorrow, gray, damp, and mild. Highs in the low 70s. 77 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inside Trump World, supporters of former President Donald Trump say federal criminal charges he's facing amount to a double standard. There's a dual track of judicial system in the United States that appears to be, you know, thumb on a scale towards conservatives and benefiting, you know, liberals. It's Monday, June 12th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Trump's allies are planning to minimize the damage of federal charges but maximize the potential for fundraising. J.P. Morgan Chase has settled a lawsuit with victims of the late Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was a client of J.P. Morgan, which allegedly helped facilitate his sex trafficking operation. And we remember this day 60 years ago when civil rights leader Medgar Evers was assassinated at his home in Jackson, Mississippi, by a member of the Ku Klux Klan. It's 6.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Donald Trump has arrived in Miami ahead of his scheduled first appearance tomorrow on charges he mishandled classified documents, storing them at various unsecured locations at his Mar-a-Lago estate. 
Trump is due to appear in court tomorrow to answer to a 37-count federal indictment. Federal officials are already making preparations at the courthouse where the former president will appear, ramping up security in anticipation of protests. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez says officials are hoping any demonstrations outside the courthouse will be peaceful. Ukraine's military says it has liberated four villages in the southeastern part of the country. It's part of its newly launched offensive against Russian troops. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. Ukrainian troops posted videos of themselves with the country's blue and yellow flag in the four villages, which are all close to one another in the Donetsk region in the southeast. Retaking the villages is seen as one small step in an offensive widely expected to grow into the biggest battle since Russia invaded more than 15 months ago. The Ukrainians are now attacking on three separate fronts in the east and the southeast. President Volodymyr Zelensky finally broke the silence over the weekend and announced that the long-awaited offensive was underway. However, neither Ukraine nor Russia is releasing details about the fighting. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Illinois has become the first state in the nation that will punish public libraries for banning books. Member station WBEZ Alex Degman reports a new law will withhold grant funding from libraries that remove books from shelves. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the measure into law. It requires public libraries to adopt the American Library Association's Bill of Rights, which says, among other things, that, quote, materials should not be prescribed or removed because of partisan or doctrinal disapproval. Pritzker says it's important to set the tone in this day and age. We refuse to let a vitriolic strain of white nationalism coursing through our country determine whose histories are told, not in Illinois. The measure takes effect in January. It got no support from Republican lawmakers who said this takes away control from locally elected library boards. For NPR News, I'm Alex Dagman in Springfield. One person is dead, 11 others injured after a tour boat capsized this morning outside Buffalo. Brian Mann reports. The tour takes boat passengers through a narrow man-made cave tunnel that's part of the Erie Canal system. Somehow the boat with 29 people on board tipped over. One man was trapped underneath and killed. Others were rescued or were able to wade to safety. Lockport Mayor Michelle Roman says an investigation is now underway. It's been an attraction since the 70s without incident. Um, They are going to do a full and thorough investigation. If it is unsafe, then it will not be running. Officials say none of the passengers was wearing life preservers. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Justice Elspeth Seifer will be stepping down in January. She is one of seven sitting jurists appointed by former Governor Charlie Baker. WBUR's Steve Brown says the impending vacancy will give Governor Maura Healey her first chance to make an appointment to the high court. Healy praised Cypher for her nearly seven years of service at the SJC. She'll step down five years before the mandatory retirement age of 70. Healy said the justice still has several months to go before her retirement takes effect and that she'll make an announcement about a replacement at the appropriate time. Healy was reluctant to spell out what qualities she'll be looking for in a new justice. I'll be looking for the very best person that we can find to be the next justice of the Supreme Judicial Court. Cypher will become a visiting professor of law next spring at Boston College Law School. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. State lawmakers have chosen a date for this year's sales tax holiday. Massachusetts Senate President Karen Spilka says the Massachusetts sales tax of six and a quarter percent will be suspended on August 12th and 13th. 
The tax break covers most items below $2,500. The Retailers Association of Massachusetts expects the holiday to generate approximately a half billion dollars in sales for businesses in the state. The rental market is heating up in the Boston area for leases that begin September 1st. WBR's Amy Sokolow has more on the real estate busy season. Data from Boston Pads showed that the average rents in the city recently topped $3,000 for the first time. But renters are increasingly offering to pay hundreds of dollars more than the listed price. Boston Pads CEO Dimitrios Saupoglo says there's a near-record low apartment inventory as mortgage interest rates rise, forcing would-be buyers to remain renters. It's low supply. We're not bringing a lot of new property to the market. There's also very low inventory in the suburbs for sale. And so I think that also slows down people moving out. He advises renters to conduct their apartment search intensely over just a couple days and to make a quick decision. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Burlington School Superintendent is calling on community members to talk with their children about differences among students. The message comes after decorations to celebrate Pride Month were vandalized by some students at Burlington Middle School earlier this month. Burlington's Equity Coalition says it will call on town leadership to take a more active stance against hate during a public meeting tonight. And the forecast ending the day with some sunshine, but increasing clouds should have some showers move through the region tonight, down around 61 degrees. And for tomorrow, look for some sporadic showers in the morning. Should be mostly cloudy during the day. Pretty mild. Temperatures about 73 degrees. 77 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Attorneys are calling it a major step towards justice for victims of Jeffrey Epstein. J.P. Morgan has settled a lawsuit over alleged ties to the late disgraced financier and his sex trafficking operation. We'll have details on that settlement in just a moment. First, former President Trump has arrived in Miami ahead of his first appearance at a federal courthouse tomorrow. He's facing unprecedented criminal charges over his handling of classified materials. He went on attack over the weekend, telling a crowd at the North Carolina Republican Convention that the case against him amounts to election interference by President Joe Biden. The baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. I think it already is when you think about it. President Biden has said he's never, quote, suggested to the Justice Department what they should or should not do. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has been talking with people close to Trump about how they view the case. And he's here in the studio. Hi, Franco. Hey, Ari. All right. What, what, what should we expect tomorrow? I mean, you shouldn't expect too much substance. An arraignment is more of a procedural event. But this is, of course, a very significant and historic arraignment. Trump is expected to plead not guilty to the 37 charges. I spoke with Stephen Groves, who was a former White House attorney who worked on the Mueller investigation. He told me he expects Trump's lawyers will soon file a motion to dismiss the case. And he argues they have a good basis to do that because presidents have broad authority on what they can classify and declassify. The old saying is tried and true that no one is above the law. The question is, what is the law here? Do laws that were not written and not designed to 
handle presidents and former presidents uh, really apply. He went on to say that the authors probably didn't have presidents in mind when they wrote these laws and that the courts will have to determine whether or not they have constitutional privileges that excuse the president from some of these laws like this. And yet when you read the indictment, it goes way beyond keeping classified documents. They allege that he actively worked to stop the government from recovering those documents. Right. The conspiracy to obstruct the justice charge. Trump's accused of suggesting to one of his lawyers even that they lie to the FBI about the documents or hide them or possibly even destroy them. But his lawyers are likely going to argue about these broad executive powers as president. And Grove says there are better ways of checking that power by not reelecting him or if he was still in office by impeaching him. And he says, in his opinion at least, it'll be a stretch under the Constitution to bring criminal charges against a former president over classified documents because of that broad authority. Of course, we are seeing others from the former Trump administration, including his own attorney general, Bill Barr, saying this looks like a really tough indictment to get over. How are other people close to the former president responding? You know, they are really fighting back. As one former advisor told me, you know, they're not going to give an inch. It's not that Trump's team is not concerned, but they also see that as an opportunity to galvanize support around a central message of his campaign, that there is a double standard of treatment against Republicans at the Justice Department and FBI. I spoke about this with Brian Lanza, who was a former aide to Trump and remains in very close contact with the campaign. It also highlights the fact that there's a dual track of judicial system in the United States that appears to be, you know, thumb on a scale towards conservatives and benefiting liberals. And he says the campaign is already making a lot of money in that process on that argument. The campaign has sent a bunch of texts and emails asking for donations for Trump's legal defense, as well as asking for campaign donations. We'll also hear more from Trump just a few hours later after he appears in court. He plans to address the indictment in public remarks when he returns to his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. The 2024 presidential primary season is already underway with a growing Republican field. How is the indictment likely to affect the election? Well, I mean, what happens tomorrow is just the start. The criminal cases criminal cases can take months, if not years, to resolve, of course, and it's going to add a lot of uncertainty to the 2024 presidential race. There's a real possibility that Trump will be in the thick of this legal fight at the same time he's in the thick of his campaign fight. But few of his opponents in the Republican primary have used the charges to try to attack him. Even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his closest rival, has come to his defense. And it's going to be interesting to watch whether Trump can maintain his support. But it's really early. It's NPR's Franco Ordonez giving some insight into the perspective from those close to former President Trump. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. $290 million. That is how much J.P. Morgan Chase is prepared to pay victims of Jeffrey Epstein to settle a major lawsuit that those survivors brought against the bank. Epstein was one of J.P. Morgan's customers for 15 years. And as NPR's David Gura reports, the plaintiffs allege that the firm helped facilitate Epstein's sex trafficking operation. If a judge approves the agreement, this substantial sum will be divvied up among more than 100 of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. That's according to David Boyes, who's one of their attorneys. It's a major step in achieving vindication and compensation for the survivors. They alleged J.P. Morgan Chase knew, or at least should have known, about Epstein's abuse. Notably, the bank didn't cut ties with him, even after Epstein was sentenced to jail for soliciting prostitution with a child. Epstein was awaiting trial for sex trafficking when he died by suicide in 2019. J.P. Morgan maintains it didn't know. 
In May, its CEO, Jamie Dimon, told Bloomberg TV he was sad the firm had any relationship with Epstein whatsoever. Obviously, had we known then we know today, we would have done things differently, but it's very unfortunate. In a statement, J.P. Morgan called its association with Epstein a mistake. The settlement comes after a string of embarrassing revelations in hundreds of email messages and depositions with executives. Dimon himself sat for a deposition last month for more than five hours. Epstein kept his accounts at the bank, and he brought in business. He also withdrew tens of thousands of dollars from his accounts in cash, withdrawals that weren't reported. For years, Epstein had a close relationship with one of Diamond's deputies, Jess Staley. Staley later led the British bank Barclays, where in 2021, his friendship with Epstein was his undoing. Barclays CEO Jess Staley is stepping down, this following an investigation into his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. J.P. Morgan is now suing Staley, alleging he misled the firm about Epstein. Boys calls this settlement historic, but he says institutions have to take more responsibility. It is, I think, a, an object lesson of how much farther we need to go as a society to really implement the rule of law, not only for the rich and the powerful, uh, but for the weak and the vulnerable. J.P. Morgan's Epstein-related legal troubles are not over yet. The U.S. Virgin Islands, where Epstein lived, has filed a similar suit against the bank that is still pending. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Shortly after midnight on June 12, 1963, civil rights organizer Medgar Evers pulled into his driveway in Jackson, Mississippi. He stepped out of his Oldsmobile carrying shirts that read, Jim Crow must go. And then... In a vacant lot about 40 yards away, a sniper fired a single shot from a high-powered rifle at Evers' silhouette. Today marks 60 years since that assassination. Evers became a national civil rights martyr. He was 37. NPR's Julian Ring has this remembrance. Only a few hours before Medgar Evers was killed, President John F. Kennedy had addressed the civil rights movement on TV. Now, one of its most prominent figures was gone murdered by a member of the Ku Klux Klan, who wouldn't be brought to justice for more than 30 years. While civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. pushed for equality across the U.S., Evers focused his efforts on his native Mississippi. He worked as the NAACP's first field secretary in that state. Don't shop for anything on Capitol Street. Let's let the merchants down on Capitol Street feel the economic pinch. Evers led boycotts of white-owned businesses, he held voter registration drives for Mississippi's black population, and he fought to overturn segregation in public spaces, like during this direct action campaign in Jackson in May 1963. We'll be demonstrating here until freedom comes to Negroes here in Jackson, Mississippi. This was just weeks before he died. One of Evers' most famous moments of activism came when he applied to law school at the all-white University of Mississippi. After the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, he partnered with the NAACP to see if the new law was being enforced. It wasn't. Evers was rejected because of the color of his skin. But he carried out a long campaign to integrate the university paving the way for future generations of black students. Evers' growing stature as a black leader attracted hostility from white supremacists. Here's his widow, Merle Evers-Williams, speaking to NPR in 2013. Medgar became number one on the Mississippi to kill list. 
And we never knew from one day to the next uh, what would happen. We lived, I lived in fear of losing him. Uh, he lived being constantly aware that he could be killed at any time. Despite receiving violent threats, Evers often spoke of his affection for home. He wrote an essay titled Why I Live in Mississippi, which was published in the November 1958 issue of Ebony Magazine. His older brother, Charles, read an excerpt on NPR. It may sound funny, but I love the South. I don't choose to live anywhere else. There is room here for my children to play and grow and become good citizens if the white men will let them. Charles Evers was himself a civil rights activist who helped transform Mississippi politics. He became the state's first black mayor of a biracial town in 1969 and carried on his brother's legacy. I've met him, I said it many years ago, if we could ever end the, the, the violent racism in the state, it would be the greatest state in the world to live. And now, Medgar, I know you're gone, and, but I'm telling you, son, it's come to pass. The assassination of Medgar Evers, June 12, 1963, 60 years ago this week. But they laid Medgar Evers in his grave. Julian Ring, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up next, Tony Award-winning actress Jodie Comer. And tonight on Marketplace, nearly one in three American parents don't know their work schedules more than two weeks in advance. How those unpredictable schedules upend child care. Coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts. Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. An update on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than a half percent. S&P jumped to a 13-month high today, picking up nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq grew by more than one and a half percent. Researchers at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard are trying to form a union. The biotech workers behind the effort run experiments, analyze data, and process samples. They say they want fair wages, more transparency and promotions, disability accommodations, and more. A Broad spokesperson says it's looking forward to working with the researchers to ensure it's an open and inclusive workplace. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. Clouds move in for the night tonight. Rain should fall. Temperatures dropping only to about 60 overnight. And for tomorrow, should make it to 73 degrees. Sporadic showers, especially during the first half of the day, then clouds later on. This is WBUR, 76 degrees now in Boston at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Jodie Comer. American audiences probably know her as Villanelle, the beautiful chameleon-like assassin on Killing Eve. I did my first ever kill in this country here. Strangled a high-ranking police officer. 
He was a Tango champion. Or as Millie and her avatar Molotov girl in the movie Free Guy. Now Comer is also a Tony Award winner. She won Best Actress at last night's ceremony for Prima Facie. The one-woman show is in the final weeks of a Broadway run after selling out in London's West End last year. It is the story of Tessa, a lawyer who successfully represents men accused of sexual assault. The only way the system works is because we all play our roles. My role is defense. The prosecutor prosecutes. We each tell a story and the jury decide which story is the one they believe. They take the responsibility. A good lawyer just tells the best version of their client's story, nothing more, nothing else. But Tessa's idea of the law and the system she excels at beating changes after she is sexually assaulted by a co-worker and love interest. I spoke to Jodie Comer before the show's Broadway debut. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jodie, there's so much to talk about here, and I want to get into the themes of this play, but as I just mentioned, you are the play. It runs for about two hours, and it's a combination of narration and acting, and it's incredibly physical. Like, you do not just act out these parts. <laughs> you are all over the set. You are jumping on tables. Your hands are all over the place. And I got a little tired watching you. What has this been like for you physically? Yes, it was definitely, you know, a challenge, but it was also incredible. You know, I think it really fed into this this fact that, you know, Tessa was in control of every element of this storytelling, you know, and um, that was what really struck me when I first read the piece, you know, I'd explored material before that deals with sexual assault, but it was never told in this manner. And I felt like she had so, so much control over the narrative. The other thing that sticks in my head thinking about watching you as Tessa is, your voice and the way it changes when you're talking about a high moment, when you're talking about a low moment, when you're describing things that are funny or things that are sad. What was it like having to control all of these different elements for two hours? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I think it's something you're really aware of at the beginning because, um, you know, I just felt so intimidated by the size of it all. But you then come to a point where it kind of flows naturally. But what I was struck by in my kind of research, you know, there's one particular barrister who I was kind of shadowing and she was from Scotland. But whenever she spoke publicly in court, her accent really diminished, mm. you know, and she was uh, pronouncing her words much clearer. And I thought, how interesting is that, you know, that there's a kind of presentation within the court itself. And then, you know, like you say, when you see Tessa at home, she's kind of back to her roots and that kind of, I guess, facade slips and they're all just nuances. You know, these were all things that I witnessed and thought, oh, how great if we can incorporate that, especially because Tessa is from a working class background and she's extremely successful, but it's all from her own hard work. It's so interesting because, as you point out, Tessa is from a working class background, and she describes early on how she fought her way to Cambridge Law, which is no small feat, and she's just so powerful as the play opens. Yeah, I mean, she's confident, you know? Like, that's what's so brilliant about that opening. Like, there's a cockiness to her, and there's a slight arrogance. There's an element where you could see her in that opening scene and maybe dislike her a little bit because of her arrogance. But I love that she was allowed to be just that because she believed in herself. Early on, it, it almost seems as though she thinks of her work as a bit of a game. I don't know if I would say that I think she manipulates the accusers, but she is fully in control in that courtroom. Is that a fair assessment of the way you think she approaches the law? Yes, I, I do. I think there's an element of, you know, 
there's a way in which the law works and she understands that so fully so that when she you know she gets in into the courtroom and she sees how people are potentially underestimating her or undermining her you know there's a way in which she like you say manipulates that situation she may play into that to then kind of catch them out at the end but like fundamentally she believes in the law you know it's something that she's committed her entire life to um and i think that's what makes her journey all the more kind of richer and also devastating is the fact that she's dedicated her life and her time to something that is very much called into question um and by the end of the play you know she she doubts a, a lot of that and sees how it it really does need to change as we were talking about when we see tessa at the beginning of the play she is larger than life she is powerful she owns the court she owns the stage and then there's this turn in this incredibly intense and frankly difficult to watch couple of minutes the audience experiences her through you being assaulted and i'd just like to ask you what was it like for you portraying those very intense moments i always remember you know that part of the play is like you literally feel the entire audience holding their breath like i'm always struck in that moment by the silence in the room mm. what what i loved about it and what i will say and, and what i think about again the power of the play is that you don't see the perpetrator you don't see julian you don't see the physical assault take place but it's all about language and stillness and her telling you what it is that she's experiencing you know it's incredibly intimate and exposing and i think the way in which the assault is depicted is is very rare and i think in a way that's what makes it all the more powerful how do you think that tessa's idea of legal truth changes over the course of the play i think it changes in a sense of you know especially you know when you think about being questioned in court you know if a woman becomes irate or emotional that can be used against her and it, and it's like if you experience something like tessa experiences how are you so how are you supposed to bottle up that emotion when it's something that has happened to you and is so deeply deeply personal right how are you not emotional how are you not angry exactly, exactly. and um you know i think as well this idea that you know the woman is questioned the man can sit there you know, for instance, I'd speak about Tessa and Julian. It's like, she's questioned, her phone is searched, you know. She has to speak about the assault and what happened to her in front of her family in court and in front of, you know, however many strangers who are predominantly men. And Julian can just sit there in silence and not have to prove anything, you know. It's it's up to her to prove her innocence, actually, is what is what it is. And I think she realises how, you know how backwards that is, you know, the fact that he can sit there and not be cross-examined. That was Jodie Comer, now a Tony Award winner and star of the one-woman show, Prima Facie.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tomorrow afternoon at 3, former President Trump is expected to appear in federal court in Miami on charges related to his possession of classified documents after his presidency. Listen to WBUR for live special coverage tomorrow starting at 3 o'clock. Red Sox open up a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies tonight at Fenway. James Paxton takes the hill for the Sox. Former Sox pitcher Connor Siebold goes for the Rockies. Game time is set for 7:10. Mount Washington in New Hampshire is in the midst of its snowiest June on record. 8.4 inches of snow has fallen atop the mountain so far this month. Summit meteorologists say the record snowfall is due to high pressure from the Canadian wildfires and low pressure from our region. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Lyric Stage with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters in a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, lyricstage.com.